Hello and welcome to the Montana Power Podcast. My name is Max Smith. I'm a farmer in the Bitter Valley and also one of the three hosts of this show. This show is focused on the the lead up to the June primaries because we're really trying to turn up the volume on some voices you haven't heard. Voices that, if amplified by you, could sway this election. Um, frankly, we need your help. Uh, if you enjoy this podcast, we don't just want your rating on iTunes or Stitcher or some as of not yet known podcasting app. We don't care about all that. We, we, we want your engagement as a citizen. We want you to spread the word of this podcast to your friends. Um, tell them about the public service commission, the issues confronting Montana and, and also, you know, tell them about this guy, Dan. Thanks, Max. Yeah, my name is Dan Carlino. I'm a graduate from the University of Montana here, where I studied environmental studies and wildlife biology. Currently, I organize with many different climate groups in Montana and help start the Sunrise Movement Hub here in Missoula. You know, at the age of 22, I am passionate about fighting for a Green New Deal to guarantee a livable future for my generation and the many generations to come. I am working on that by running for the Montana Public Service Commission here in District 4. Well said, Dan. Hi, I'm Ryan the Canadian, and I'm here to bring an international perspective to the podcast. <laughs> I'm also a medical illustrator, but I can't tell you any more than that, which is honestly really frustrating because I'm passionate about my work. But I'm legally prevented from talking about any of it due to the proprietary nature of some of the research projects that I'm involved in. Anyways, that being said, that's probably the last time I'll mention that on the podcast, that brings us to our conversation today with a great activist, 2018 gubernatorial candidate for Vermont, former manager of the Vermont Electric Co-op, and the protagonist of the 2016 documentary Denial, Christine Halkvist. Gonna take a ride, a holiday, fall away, damn it feels good to drive. Hey, Dan, welcome to the show. Uh, sorry about the technical difficulties earlier. Um, so oh, I guess, no worries. Hey, Ryan. <laughs> yeah, no problem, no problem. So I guess we're both quarantined uh, in our individual spaces. I'm in my makeshift office in my uh, new rental uh, house that I'm renting out, and I guess you're over in Missoula? Yeah, I'm in my uh, apartment over here on 4th Street in uh, downtown Missoula area. You're you know, just... Staying quarantined with, with my cat and roommates here. That sounds nice. What's your cat's name? Uh, my cat's name is Toulouse. He's a three-year-old fluff, fluffy cat. Uh, he goes inside, outside. Okay. But he's mostly a goofball. Yep. Wow. So what kind of... Oh, sorry. I should I should get to the point. I don't. I was going to ask you what kind of goofy <laughs> stuff the cat gets up to. Um, I guess I guess what we should do now is uh, talk about our first guest and the story behind that. So we actually interviewed her back in November, and then um, as we uh, delayed and delayed uh, the release of the podcast, um, we uh, got caught in the middle of this, uh, well, as we all did, the, the COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, as a result, I felt like it would be, we'd be remiss if we didn't comment on it, especially in light of one of the comments that 
Christine had made about um, how people's frame of mind changes in a in a crisis, and I I see this as a crisis. I don't right. know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I remember we did a I did a campaign event at the senior center after the market with Max Smith um, back a few months ago as well, where we showed Christine Hallquist's movie where she was the protagonist in it, uh, Denial. And it was pretty interesting because Christine like walked everyone through the energy grid and, and how complicated it is. And then also just worked like worked in um, uh, how people deny the climate crisis and what actually needs to be done. And then that connection with the energy grid. And then it just seems like another connection with the crisis that we're facing right now, COVID-19. So I, we called Christine back uh, to have a two-part interview to kind of integrate that in as well. So it ended up being a pretty interesting uh, conversation with our energy expert. Yeah, and, and I, I would also say that uh, this is sort of similar to climate change in some ways. I'm not sure. Maybe it's a tenuous connection, but in that people with climate change, people similarly aren't used to the idea of, uh, of exponential growth. I don't know if you know what I mean. Right. I feel like people were just are just denying it right write the plainly the signs in their face. Um, people just don't want to accept it because it's hard to accept the fact of how extreme it is of, of climate change. And I feel like it was, it's been a little bit similar with the COVID-19 at first, like in the U S the, uh, the government and most people just didn't want to accept the reality that of, of how fast this thing spreads. And, and I think I, I, there's definitely a connection there. Yeah, no, I would say so. Um, so, Christine, she, she talks about the, the smart grid, um, and I guess that's what we're going to start with, the, the first interview. And then the second half of the interview, uh, we're going to um, delve into uh, how sh- uh, she thinks that we can, um, how we can emerge from this crisis uh, stronger. You know, we've had cheap energy for such a long time. So when we throw a switch, we expect it to go on. When we turn on our toaster, we expect it to go on. Now, everybody, you know, if you think about everybody, we all get up about the same time of the day and we go to work and we all turn on our toasters and we do all these. We're all in this in this behavior, which is pretty much, you know, a wired behavior for us. So we've devised this energy system to handle what are called peak loads. So, you know, it, unfortunately, you know, we, we, we've got, we, we, we waste a lot of energy. If you look at our entire energy system and you start with 100 units of energy, we throw away 65 units of energy even before it gets on the power line. And then, of course, it loses another 10 units. So by the time you get to your house meter, you've lost, you've thrown away 75 units. So we have plenty of room to optimize our system. By utilizing uh, uh, smart communications with the end appliances, so you think about—I'll use the most simple example to to uh, to to talk about this. Let's talk about an electric vehicle. You, know, you go to bed at night, you you plug in your electric vehicle. You don't care when it charges, as long as you get up in the morning, you can drive it to work, right? So, if everybody plugs in their car at 5 p.m. Mm. Essentially, and we're all running on electric. Essentially, the grid's going to collapse. Right. So, so what we want to do is communicate with those cars to say, "Hey, hey, you know, Sammy, your car charges at twelve twelve 
between 12 and 2.30 in the morning. Uh, Sally, your car charged at, at, at between 10 and, and midnight, you know, and, and, and start having this interactive communication so we can start optimizing the entire system. Now, we have the technology. You think about your cell phones and all the apps we have. Mm-hmm. We, we don't have to think about that. We can have our appliances have the communication, and we can send price signals. The pricing is directly related to the load. So if you look at 2 o'clock in the afternoon in Southern California, you know, an office building is paying 33 cents a kilowatt hour. But if they bought that electricity in the middle of the night, it'd be only 3 cents a kilowatt hour. So if you could take and use storage and move these things around, you could, first of all, save a lot of money. And, oh, by the way, we could start utilizing our renewals more efficiently. So let me trans- move over to trying to run our world on solar. Mm. You know, uh, uh, let's, let's say I'm going to give you a rough number. It's actually a little lower than that. The Northeast, we have about uh, a 20% capacity factor in solar. So the average in Vermont, we, have, we only average about 4.2 hours a day of solar the entire year round. Mm-hmm. So, the, so to think about trying to run the whole business on, on those, that kind of a, a system, well, in order to provide the whole day, you need to have like six or seven times the amount of solar you need to, uh, in order to gain as much energy during those sun, sunlight hours right. and then distribute it for the rest of time. Now, they, our grid can't handle that. You know, you'd have to build a grid and it'd be so expensive. Mm-hmm. But if we could start communicating with appliances, um, we could start optimizing that system. I'll give you another example, a hot water heater. Most people, you know, they don't, they don't know when their hot water heater turns on, but there's this thing called a dead zone in the hot water heater. So, you know, you set your hot water heater for 120 degrees and it'll actually heat up to about 123 degrees and then drop down to 117 degrees. That whole dead zone is a place where you can play and the, cons- the end consumer doesn't even know what's happening. You know, so what you do is you, you know, get, you got millions of hot water heaters out there. You have them all talking to each other and optimize those. So it's about having the appliances communicating with the grid. And then, oh, by the way, if you've got excess solar, you've got excess wind blowing at the same time, then you take all these devices and say, okay, everybody charge right now because we have an excess of power. Mm. And then when we, have, when we need power, you tell everything to just, just cycle back down. So we, it's, the smart grid is a critical component of getting to um, – to to an optimal system that will allow us to add more renewables. Hmm. Uh, but does that make sense? Did I explain that in a logical enough way? Absolutely. I think I think that breaking it down um, to when the sun is shining and and stuff like that, and then recognizing the problem with battery storage currently, really shows that the need for a smart grid and seeing when and where we use different amounts of energy um, is is the exact reason that that we need that. And I wonder what it would take to implement that wide range in Montana or in Vermont, for example, to get everyone well, a it, smart grid meter. Here's, here's what happened in Vermont. Um, we, you know, you, you always need the pioneer. We were the pioneers. We, mm-hmm. we put in the smart grid in 2005. The rest of Vermont didn't start putting it in until 2011. I actually personally wrote, that was part of the stimulus funds, you know, and I actually was the person who wrote the, the stimulus funding grant for Vermont. Um, so I was very active working collaboratively with the rest of the state um, to, to get Smart Creek going. However, we had a, uh, a, a public service commission. Actually, in Vermont, we have this thing called the Department of Public Service, which is the consumer advocate. Mm-hmm. We had 
they were putting lots of pressure on the rest of the utilities to to uh, put in the smart grid. The utilities didn't like it, no. you know. But I but I do think, you know, it's one of these things where you've got to you've got to keep the pressure on. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, and I think that's the job of the commission. We are, you know, we have to insist we're going to get there. But however, that said. The part, you know, you'll see later on where I started backing off from these renewable goals. The problem is, I'll go back to what I talked about at the beginning, where I talked about thousands of Vermonters and not having a list of concerns. We are not feeling enough pain yet. America's not ready. You know, you think about a carbon tax or things like that. You're going to get killed for trying to pass something like that because we're still in love with our fossil fuels. Uh, you, you know, the, in the, in the and if you saw the movie, there was a statement from the psychologist, a really powerful statement. Yeah. I didn't like it when I heard it first, mm. but it I took me a while to it to warm up to it. But it's the truth. The greatest predictor of change is misery. Mm-hmm. Now, for mm-hmm. me, no, you know, knowing the studying I've done on climate change, you know, if you look at where we are today, you know, we're, you know, the Earth has had five major extinction events, four of which were carbon fueled. The last carbon-fueled event was called the Permian Extinction Event 250 million years ago. Mm-hmm. 85% of the land species and 95% of the marine species were totally wiped out. And our carbon dioxide is increasing 10 times the rate of that that event. And, I, you know, I went to the first Intergovernmental Climate Change Ten times? Yes, 10 times oh, that rate. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's the, that's, that's the biggest worrisome with me with, with the climate crisis right now is the mass species, species extinctions that we're in the, that we're in the middle of. And, we're in the middle of a major extinction event. So what I'm going to say is I truly believe in the next five years, America is going to feel enough pain that it will be on people's, uh, that, that it'll get easier for those of us who are trying to lead the change mm-hmm. to make the change happen. You know what? There's one thing I will say I've learned in life. There's the, the, the power of constancy of purpose uh, cannot be overcome. We have to remain you know, if you if the public service commission has to keep the pressure on, you know, you're you got to work with your legislature. You've got to you've got to you know do do the advocacy work. Um, right now, I've decided also immediately after my campaign, I got on the three fifty dot three fifty Vermont board, which is a three fifty dot org, because I realized I realized we have a lot of work to do to educate the public about the dangers that we're facing in the climate crisis. But we, are, you know, our job right now is to keep the pressure on, just like you, you know, I've, I'm, I'm not pulling any punches now. You know, I go, I speak, you know, I spoke to four different universities in the past month, and I, I you know, I make it very clear we're in a crisis. We have to be honest about the science. The science is there. And, you know, it, it, and it, you know what, the, we, we have the truth on our side. Why are we wasting our resources? Why do we have such inefficient energy systems? Unquestionably, the ultimate goal is we've got to come into balance with our energy picture. What balance means is we only use the amount of energy on a daily basis that we gain from the sun plus geothermal. That's it. Anything else is working outside of our natural cycle and we'll be in trouble. This is what this is all about. We have all this infrastructure and I think there's a better way. When we got down to that iPhone, which has more compute power than the entire country did when we landed on the moon, in your hand, 
You did that because we figured out how to get better than 99% efficiency in that phone. So we've done it. When we do that with our grid, we got more power than we could ever consider needing. You know, we, after Katrina, um, you know, the Katrina crisis was the crisis of the Bush administration. And, you know, I think we all learned from the uh, Katrina crisis and the country, all, you know, if you look at um, most of the, uh, most of the electric utilities and the, and the uh, emergency responders that were paying attention adopted uh, the, the uh, protocols of the Nat- National Incident Command System. Um, and there's a whole set of protocols and procedures that go with that. It's a very good uh, procedure. And, and, of course, our company, we adopted that as well. Mm. So what you do, you know, I might have been the CEO of the company, but when a storm hits, you assign an incident commander. You know, and, and the incident commander essentially takes over at that point. And the idea of the incident commander is the person with the expertise. So, of course, in the electric utility, the incident commander is typically the chief operating officer. So when a storm hits, you know, I I no longer, as a CEO, lead the company. I follow the lead of the incident commander, who is the chief operating officer. And, you know, I would expect in a situation like we have today that somebody like Dr. Fauci would be the incident commander. And the president would fade into the background. But of course, that's not what's happening. What we're seeing is is the, the skills in this particular area who's continuing trying to lead this, which is really the not the way you should handle a crisis. Um, you really want to turn the crisis over to the experts. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So that's really what I'm observing here is we're a, a complete lack of protocol in this crisis. Now, of course, there was a lack of protocol during Katrina, right? but we all, we all learned from that. Yeah. Who would have thought it could have gotten worse? Yeah. I mean, that was, an, that was an, I mean, I, I'm from Canada and, uh, you know, watching from there, it was it sure seemed like an unmitigated disaster. I mean, they pulled it. Oh, through. and Katrina? Yeah. And Katrina? Yeah, yeah. Katrina was an unmitigated disaster. Um, but, but it taught, it taught us all some lessons taught us lessons that we all, when you're in, you know, when you're first responders and, and you're working uh, on a crisis, that you all follow a standardized procedure. And, and for many, many years, we spent years and years and years as a country agreeing to the standards of the National Incident Command System. And it seems like the Trump administration either is totally unaware of it or just or Trump just totally ignores it, or his personality doesn't allow him to surrender to the experts. Yeah, it sounds almost like he's he's more um, concerned about getting elected and listening to you know his wealthy donors than he is about actually doing something anything that's in the best interest of the public. Yeah, that's really yeah, interesting and- that they have that protocol in place and. Now seems like the time to use it more than ever. So that's that's a really interesting point. Yeah, I think it, you know, for, if if anybody's listen, you know, I should say for any for those who are listening to this podcast, you know, and who are emergency responders, they're probably aware of the National Incident Command System and the protocol. Uh, 
so I think those of us that are, you know, in the business of crisis response, it's, I think it's safe to say we all know how to do this. And it's not being done the way it should be done. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I had no idea that even existed. I mean, that would be, be a nice thing for, uh, that would be very reassuring for the public, I think, if that actually was explained in that way. Yeah. And I guarantee you, I promise you, that if the president was using the National Incident Command System, there would be not little, very little panic. There'd be a, there'd be a, a, a solid level of confidence. Um, you know, it really is. You know, we all understand crisis. You know, I think I think any of us who are who have been paying attention, you know, we expected at some point we would see see kind some kind of uh, you know virus like this. You know, we've been talking about this for years. We've been talking about pandemics, preparing for pandemics, tabletop exercise for pandemics. In my company, we have a you know OP sixty. It's Operation Procedure sixty, which was. The, which was a pandemic response procedure. You know, so I really think that the chaos that's happening right now can be traced right back to the lack of, of stable and responsible leadership following a standardized process. If we had that now, I think things would look a lot different. So do you, I mean, I think you've said before that, and some, this is something you've had trouble accepting, but that the greatest predictor for change is, is human misery. And do you think this is a pivotal moment for the country? And Oh, I, I'm positive it's a pivotal moment for our country. So, um, you know, this, this, I think this is as big, you know, or even bigger than the Great Depression. We're, we're all going to come out of this changed. And, and what role do you see people like, like Dan, you know, like young uh, politicians, uh, what role do you think they could have to play in, you know, reshaping the future and not allowing people uh, like Naomi Klein talks about disaster capitalism and she's recently talked about coronavirus capitalism. What, what role do you think people like Dan have in, you know, pushing a a positive agenda uh, that will allow us to have a livable future? Well, let me just uh, say that, what you, you, to, to simplify things, we we could go in two directions, and 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 I'm I'm on the optimistic side of the direction. You know, one one direction is total chaos, civil war, breakdown of the entire system. I don't think America's going to do that. Mm-hmm. I think what's going to happen is is people, we're, you know, we're, we're going to come out of this with a lot more empathy. Um, when I talk about empathy, I talk about that's going to shape our tax policies of the future. That's you know we're going to learn. That's going to we're going to learn how important things like uh, Medicare for all is as a result of this. I think people like Dan should be just prepared to to ride out the storm, and and coming out the other side, I think there's going to be a lot more willingness to to look at socializing uh, medical costs, for example. Um, I think we're you know unfortunately this is the misery. That creates the great change, but we are in the midst and the, the middle of it. I'm very optimistic that we are going to come out of this with a reset. Right. Even, and, oh. Yeah, and I and I don't think you know it's it's not a morbid spot because the point being 
you know, all, all of us who, who, uh, who, who have a positive outlook and are always looking forward, you know, we recognize that crisis and things happen that are beyond our control. But the wisdom comes from making the changes that, that making the changes that are necessary as a result of the learning that comes from those, those uh, bad things that happen. Right. The change, the time for change uh, after a crisis like this pandemic is, is very ripe. And you mentioned the Great Depression and there was large changes in the government following that with FDR and the working class pushing for these changes, such as what led us to having the New Deal, where we still see some of those programs like Social Security and job help um, still out there today. And I, I feel like like with the climate crisis coming uh, upon us and the pandemic uh, crashing the economy and and all of this put together, the time has never been more ripe for a Green New Deal following this pandemic and economic crash. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on a Green New Deal um, to help pull us out of this? Yeah, you know, I, it, so I've evolved on the Green New Deal. You know, before this crash, I don't think the Green New Deal would have, would fly, but I do believe the Green do, the Green New Deal will fly. And because of, and there are some of the criticisms I probably did this right on the last podcast. I criticized the Green New Deal because it was trying to do be too expansive. It was trying to uh, focus on economic justice issues. But I think economic justice issues as a result of this will be number one, right. and will be a number one focus. And I think tying you know the climate with those economic justice issues um, is is the way to go. Before. When I talked to you before, I, I was focusing on the climate as number one. Right. But I think what we're going to do is focus on economic justice as a number one with climate as a, as a carry-on carry issue. Um, because I think there's, we're, going to see, we're going to see so much pain in the next couple weeks and months. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do believe you know, 95% of people are good. And, and, and I'll give you a, a great example. You know, I, I was talking to my spouse the other night. She gave all of her hours away. She's, she's, you know, she's, she works um, supporting el- elder people, and uh, she has her own client base. But she gave her clients away to somebody else who basically is, you know, is running on the lower rungs of the economic ladder and struggling and, and doesn't know what to do. You know, we're going... I'm certainly willing to give up income. I know we, we are willing to give up income to help others. And we did it. But we are doing it. And I think most people are the same. And I don't think this is just an American thing. I think it's deep down, it's the goodness of humanity. Mm-hmm. We are all, we're all willing to give to help others, I believe. And I think this crisis is going to bring that out. I really hope you're right about that, Christine. That is a good perspective to have. Yeah, I think you. I think that's a good. That's a great point. And what, what would you make of uh, the idea that that you know, for instance, like we brought up disaster capitalism. Like I've heard uh, talk that um, the Trump administration, uh, this was uh, according to the Washington Post, is thinking of bailing out uh, numerous shale companies. And in Canada, they're actually already preparing a fifteen dollar. Uh, bailout, a $15 billion bailout package uh, 
for the oil and gas companies. Um, but yeah, so what do you make of that in light of the fact that in the past uh, they've said things like, oh, we can't have renewables because it's not, uh, it's not feasible from a financial perspective. But if we keep, uh, if, if now uh, these things are not uh, solvent, then is there any impediment uh, uh, standing in our way of, of actually you know, reinvesting this money in, in green uh, technology? Does that make sense? Well, uh, you know, of course, I think that would be the right way to go. Uh, and, and what we're witnessing as we speak in terms of the struggle in Congress with the bailout bill is directly related to what you're talking about. So there's, a, there's, there's a group of people that believe in the Green New Deal and are supporting that and that, that are really uh, disturbed about the fact we're bailing out the oil companies. Um, but unfortunately, you know, America, we, America hasn't learned enough, or America or the world, probably um, we'll focus on America right now. You know, we haven't suffered enough misery directly tied to the climate to give up on our fossil fuel addiction yet. Um, you know, this, this, this crisis isn't directly tied to climate change. People can't make that direct connection. Mm. So, so, of course, it's upsetting to see money going to um, going to the oil companies. However, that said, you know, where as we get months into this crisis, I believe people are going to be much more upset about the fact that we're bailing out large companies and large businesses at the expense of those people of, of the working class. You know, those people were on, on the lower end of the income ladder. So, so this is what I, you know, this is what I'm talking about in terms of um, us coming out with greater empathy. There's going to be less tolerance for that extreme wealth. I, I, I truly believe this is going to result in in um, dramatic changes in the tax code. Um, which, which, by the way, if you go back to the Great Depression and FDR, that's exactly what happened after the Great Depression. Um, so you know, you know, we saw FDR come along with um, with with all these programs, including the rural electrification program. Um, and I and I should put a plug for Winston Churchill too. At that point, you know, if you look at um, and 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 again, if if uh, Trump was following the National Incident Command System, which is something I did exactly, whenever there's a crisis, the best thing for the leader to do is be out in the field. And, 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 you know, being very visible in the, in the epicenters of the crisis. And that's what Winston Churchill did, of course, in World War II and after World War II. Um, so, you know, and that's why Winston Tur- Churchill became the great leader that he was, because he, he, he knew, he understood the leader's job. The leader's job is to, is to be out there and, um, and be, be the representative and that actually becomes a calming force. Hmm. Right. Somebody should tell that to Joe Biden. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know. Where yeah, we, yeah. I don't we know, don't know what's going on with Joe Biden, right? <laughs> Jesus. I hope he's okay. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I got to wonder, too. You know, I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but holy cow. Maybe he's, maybe that, who knows what's going to happen. <laughs> I don't know. Like, the closest thing we have to FDR in a sort of tangent, this is about Dan, but the closest thing we have to FDR is Bernie Sanders, and he's done an amazing job. And this is said by somebody who can't even vote in this country. And, uh, oh, well. One other subject well, that I wanted well, to get... Well, let me just say, uh-huh. too, I want to put a, I want to plug on that one. 
I think if this crisis had come four months earlier, Bernie would be the candidate right now. Yeah. Right. Right. The yeah. time, the timing was just off for Bernie. Yeah. It's really sad. It's quite disappointing. Um, but, uh, the, the time isn't up. And, uh, one other thing I wanted to get your opinion on Christine, uh, during our, we did a PSC candidate forum here a few weeks ago, and um, I've been talking about this throughout the campaign. But I announced just that we need to look into putting our energy grid into public ownership. Um, that way, the people that are wanting renewables would help push for it easier than going through this uh, for-profit monopoly that has doubled their profits in the past five years, and then putting some of the more of that money um, back into lowering people's bills rather than going to the profiteers. And I'm curious what your thoughts on on public ownership of the energy grid would are and um, how you think that would affect the transition to renewables and how that would affect people's energy prices. Well, you know, being, being the fact that I was the CEO of an electric cooperative and I, and, right. and I was a leader in the National Rural Electric Cooperative System, which which serves 56% of the landmass of America. Um, I, uh, you know, I'm a big advocate for public power. Um, I, I do think public ownership is, is, would, would help us a lot. And let me tell you why, because what I found, and, and I've talked, you know, in my travels, I talked with a lot of uh, investor-owned utility managers versus public power managers. And there's a big difference when you're a public power manager. When you're an investor-owned utility manager, you're focused on the quarterly dividend, and that's what you focus quarter to quarter to quarter. One of the things I found very refreshing about public power is that there's definitely an eye to the long term. You could talk ten and twenty years out in public power, uh, and and that's really how public power talks. So I I think renewables does have a greater opportunity for success if. Uh, utilities are publicly owned. And I've, you know, of course, when, during my campaign, I pressed public ownership of telecommunications facilities mm-hmm. because, you know, America is 10th in the world in terms of telecom. Those leading countries in the world have publicly owned telecommunications facilities. Um, so, you know, there's clear data that shows that public ownership provides a better product. And, you know, to counter those people that might accuse me of being, um, uh, well, they would they would accuse me of being a communist. When you hear people, say, you know, they, whenever you hear, hear people accuse you of being a socialist, they're really talking about communism. Yeah, of course, we're not a communist, but I will tell you, um, socializing investments with infrastructure actually creates better capitalism, and and so socializing electric power is just like socializing your roads. You know, we mm-hmm. none of us complain about the fact that we pay for the roads with our with our taxes and we've and the united states has long had a very good transportation infrastructure and it's always been publicly owned right yeah unfortunately unfortunately i'm speaking about the automobile yeah unfortunately it'd be nice if we had some light rail or or other alternative modes of uh transportation and yeah, you're hardly a, a communist. And, and I'm from British Columbia, and we have, uh, well, we used to have, I think we have some private public pr- uh, partnerships. But as far as I know, the BC Hydro is still publicly owned. So Canada, yep. Canada yep. isn't exactly yeah. a, you know, a, a communist country. So 
No, of course <laughs> not. <laughs> it's uh, it's so absurd the things you hear. Anyways, yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, um, but Dan, did you have any other uh, any other questions? Uh, I guess uh, just addressing sort of where we go moving forward. Um, it's probably hard to really put into words right now. I mean, this kind of, this crisis is just unfolding right now. Right. Well, I think Dan, Dan, are you running for office or are you in office? I'm I'm running for the public service commission here, not in office right well, now. Well, you're. Yeah, I mean, I think the the, the you know the point for any leader right now is is compassion and empathy mm-hmm. you know compassion and empathy getting us through this crisis and what i mean by compassion and that empathy it's it's compassion for the you know it's people like me you know sitting here living with my 88 year old mother um mm-hmm. you know or or compassion for 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 anybody that that's exposed to the, the virus which is really all of us you know so i I think we're all in the same boat right now and, and good leadership right now is all about compassion and empathy. Right. Right. Well, that's uh, really then, well. Yeah. Sorry. And then, then when you get to the other end of this, that's the time to start looking at the policies that need to be reformed as a result of what we learned in this crisis. Yeah, no, that's really well said. Uh, I guess that the whole key is getting through this and, uh, the best we can and and hopefully our our leaders uh that we currently have 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 that same empathy that that, that dan has and other uh uh upcoming uh leadership in the country has yeah and if you want if you're you know i've been a very of course i'm in i'm in new york state right now so i've been watching cuomo a lot uh governor cuomo really has this empathy thing down good you know every one of his um his updates, he includes, you know, a, 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 a great deal of time talking about, you know, issues we can all relate to and bringing people in who are, who are, um, you know, who, who are experiencing the same things we are. Yeah, that is good. Although I've, I'm slightly disconcerted by the talk he has of uh, bringing uh, people back into the workforce too early. So hopefully, hopefully, yeah, I, hopefully I, 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 cooler I, I, heads I, I, prevail on that one. Pardon? I kind of missed the news cycle today on that one, but that 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 is disconcerting. Yeah, I mean, that's something really... I've heard, but I don't know. Yeah. Anyways, I don't have any citations. I think I, I think it's yeah, it's out there. So hopefully he doesn't do that. But <laughs> yeah, I wonder. I wonder who's really worried about you know about the a financial collapse. We've got this dialogue going on right now about. It, it really, what the dialogue boils down to is what's the value of a human life. Right. Which is, to me, to me, is a, an absolutely horrendous dialogue that we're even having. Um, but you know, I'm not, I'm not the billionaire. <laughs> so, 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 you know, I look at the stock market crash and say, okay, you know, that's it's, it's, that's certainly not going to kill me, but the coronavirus will. Right. Yeah. There's somebody I follow on Twitter, and their comment was. Uh... It looks like profit and human life are once again in direct conf- conflict. Let's see which one wins out. Um. Yeah, I think that's, that's where we are right now. But I think for 95-plus percent of America, I think human life the priority. Well, I hope so. I mean, although I really hope so. I, I do think that's true. But, you know, when people have to go back to work, I guess they, they, they have to make tough choices. It's... Um, we really do need to restructure the, the economy in, in, a, in a way that is more 
Um, I don't know, caring. <laughs> it's a, more, more, uh, less, less cold. And anyways, it's yeah, yeah. It, something needs to get. Something will give, I guess, at some some point. Yeah, I think it's giving as we as we as we speak. Yeah, certainly an interesting time. Yeah, I really hope this pandemic makes uh, uh, U.S. citizens wake up and politicians to wake up to uh, the social injustices in our country that are still prevalent today before the pandemic and that have been uh, gotten worse after this pandemic. And I hope we make the right decisions. Um, but uh, thanks a lot for, ha- for coming on again, Christine. It's really interesting getting your perspective on all of this. Yeah, you're welcome. It was, uh, thanks for asking for my perspective. Yeah, thanks. I yeah, really valuable, uh, value it. So, uh, yeah, thanks a lot. Okay, you're welcome. Okay, have a great night. Yeah, have a good night. You too. Bye. Bye. Bye.